Good morning. It is uh, definitely my pleasure to be able to be here worshiping with you again this morning. Um, the text I want to look at today is 1 Peter 2, uh, starting at verse 4, verses 4 through 10. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, this stone, the stone which the builders rejected, has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are your people, the living stones that are being stacked to build a holy house, a temple to praise your name. May we stay true to the foundation of the apostles and prophets. May the glory never depart this house of praise. Bless us now as we come to your word. Shape us and build us up accordingly. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and amen. So in this in this passage here, uh, Peter uses the image of the cornerstone to explain to us the role that Christ is to have in our lives. Um, hopefully, this is not a new image to you. You see this kind of developed throughout uh, the New Testament, where the Old Testament temple is is described as being rebuilt by us as the stones which form the walls of this building. So we are this spiritual house, and you have. Um, you have Christ as the cornerstone, he is set, and then a foundation of the apostles and prophets are built, oriented off of him, the cornerstone. So he, he is the first piece, and everything is built, um, uh, sort of uh, guided by where he is placed. So the, the apostles and prophets form the foundation, and then we are living stones that are stacked up on that foundation and are slowly being built into this house. He says in verse 5, this is a, a spiritual house. You are being built up a spiritual house, and that you are, he says, living stones. You're living stones being built up uh, into this um, building. Um, the walls are built on the foundation, but the foundation is oriented off the cornerstone. So you can see then, if you, if you put that image together, how the cornerstone, that first stone that's laid, is going to orient and direct the building of this entire structure. Now, okay, so you get that in the image. You see how, okay, this stone shapes this building, but how does that translate or apply to you? In what way is Jesus supposed to be the cornerstone of your life? Um, he, if we take that image of the cornerstone, then somehow he's supposed to be the thing that shapes and orients your life. And your life is supposed to be um, kind of everything triangulated off of him. Well, how does, how does Jesus Christ, the Son of God, become that in your life? Well, think of it, here's a couple of different ways to unpack this. First of all, we know that the Son is the, he's the Son of the Father. It's interesting that he's described to us as a son, that, that, that there's the Father and he's the Son of the Father. Um, what is it that sons, how do sons relate to their fathers? What is it that sons do? One, one of the things you notice is how sons reveal the Father to you. 
Um, you can remember, you know, like maybe as an 18-year-old boy, you run into one of your dad's old high school friends, and he looks at you, and he's like, you're just like your father. And, and then you'll probably get a little bristle at that. You know, I didn't want to be just like him. But, but somebody sees you, and they say, no, you are, you are the image of him. You, I see you, and I, I see your father. I can see your father um, in you. When you meet a son, you see the father. He reveals the father. Think of John uh, 14. Jesus says this is how it's supposed to work. John 14, verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? The Son reveals the Father. Just as it is with us, a Son shows his Father, reveals his Father. So Jesus Christ, the Son of God, revealed the Father to us. He he showed us what the Father was like. He manifested the Father to us. Um, and, and the fact that the Son reveals the Father is, I think, uh, one of the main reasons why the Son is referred to as the Word of the Father. I always thought that's just a strange thing to call um, Jesus. He is the Word. Like, wh- why would we say He is, he is the Word? Um, if John 1, 1, we're, that's how He's introduced. In the beginning was the Word. The word was, word was with God. The Word was God. Why do we call Jesus the Word, or why is He revealed like that? Think of it this way. Um, if I have an idea in my head, let's say I'm thinking of something, and then I put that idea into a word. Um, by doing that, if I take the ideas in my head and I, and, I, and I put that idea into a word, then I can put that idea into your head as well by doing that. Um, let's say I'm thinking of something right now, but you, you don't know what it is until I say that word. Okay? Turns out the idea I'm thinking of you don't know until I tell you the, the thing I'm thinking of is a turtle. Okay. Now I say that word turtle, and this thing that was in my head is now manifest to you. It's revealed to you. It's in your head. What, what was in me was, as long as I was thinking about it, it stayed in me. But as soon as I spoke it in a word, it was revealed to you and put into your mind. I speak that word, and the thought that was in my head has been manifested to you. A word reveals the mind to someone else. It reveals my mind to you. The Son is the word of the Father. The Father speaks His word. The Father has eternally spoken His word, the Son. And, and, and the Son, standing in front of us and revealing Himself to us, reveals to us the mind of the Father. He reveals the character and the nature of the Father to us, and He reveals the mind, the plan of the Father. And, and, and when you put all that together, in this sense, the Son then acts as the cornerstone. He, he is the one who has showed us what God is like, what the plan of God is, what God desires. He revealed that to us. And in doing that, he set the stone. This, this, is, this is the mark. Everything is to be oriented and built off of that um, point that he fixed. He reveals the character, the mind, the nature of the Father, and doing so acts as a cornerstone. Um, here's the mind of the Father. Here's the plan of the Father. And what you notice is that when, that when that is revealed, when that is revealed to us in the Son, some people, when they when they hear that, they say, I want that. 
I want to be built on that. I want to live in that house. I want to, I want to be stacked inside uh, that wall and be a part of that building. Some people hear the revelation of the mind of the Father, and they are offended by it. And that's what Peter says here. Some people are built on it. Some people are tripped by it. To some, he's the cornerstone. To some, he's the stone of stumbling. Okay, you reveal what God is like. Some people are offended. Some people are drawn to it. So the next question is, where do we encounter this word? Where do we encounter um, Jesus Christ? Jesus came, revealed his teaching to the disciples, but then he is ascended into heaven. All right. So, so how do we encounter this? Um, where is Jesus revealed to us? And then the answer is simple. It's, it's right here in this word, Scripture, the Bible. This is where his teaching was preserved for us um, in, in the Bible. Um, think of uh, John 20. And Jesus' words, or actually, sorry, John's words, how he concludes uh, that gospel in John 20, starting at verse 30. He says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John lived with Jesus for the three years of his ministry and committed into the Gospel of John what he, the revelation of the Father that was in the person of Jesus Christ. And all of Scripture is the Spirit-superintended uh, preservation of that revelation. That, that cornerstone role that Jesus had is, is here in Scripture. That's what Scripture does for us. The cornerstone Jesus Christ directed um, the laying of the foundation, the apostles and prophets. And now we, his church, are charged to build on that foundation. I think it's why in, in this little passage of, of 1 Peter, we read uh, starting at verse 4 in chapter 2. Um, but if you go back a little bit, he's talking about the laying of this cornerstone. But if you go back a little bit, what you find out is he's talking about the giving the ministry of the word. Um, listen, I, I'm going to go back just to uh, chapter 1, uh, starting verse 22. And as I read, listen to how much he's talking about the Word of God, receiving the Word of God. That's what this cornerstone is. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word by which the gospel was preached to you. And he goes on to then move on to talk about that cornerstone. It's all about receiving the word. The word of God preserved here in scripture becomes the revelation of this cornerstone that's to orient all of our lives. Scripture is the revelation of the Son and acts as our standard, our straight edge, the revelation of the character of God to us. Scripture describes to us where the cornerstone is set and what is the foundation on which we should build. We, therefore, in order to be the faith, a faithful people, must cultivate a life of radical biblicism. Which is kind of the, the, the central argument here is that to be a Christian is to be somebody who's radically given to seeing this as the standard for all of their life. 
That's that radical uh, biblicism. As Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So this foundation has been laid. Jesus Christ, the apostles and prophets, uh, gave us his word. And then Paul says, you need to watch carefully that your life is built on the foundation and not off of it. And, and this is that radical biblicism that I think we're called to. We, we need to learn a radical submission to the standard of Scripture. And you can think of it in two, two different categories, okay? Uh, first of all, we can't cherry-pick our way through Scripture. We can't have, um, and, and this, this is kind of the, the classic evangelical move, where you've got a couple of verses that express a sentiment that you find kind of warm and fuzzy. Um, Psalm 23, just makes me feel loved and so read that again and again but we skip the rest of the psalms john three sixteen makes me feel special but we skip the rest of john we we, we cherry pick these little passages that, that get us uh, make us feel moved or do something for us but we miss the rest of scripture we're not allowed to do that to do that all of scripture all of scripture is given to us and we have to be people who read all the way through from cover to cover, regularly reading all the way through our Bible and not cherry-picking our way through. Um, a faith, as a faithful Christian, you should be committed to daily Bible reading, working your way all the way through the Bible. We believe that the God of the Old Testament is just a much, as much our God as the God of the New Testament. People get thrown when they start working their way through the Old Testament and they find all these things about God that they had never had, had never thought, had never suspected. Um, but we need to be people who are comfortable working all the way through our Old Testament as well as our New Testament. And the verses that offend us are just as much binding on us as the verses that give us the warm and fuzzy feels. Um, and then the second thing is, so we don't cherry-pick our way through Scripture, but we also don't cherry-pick our way through our own life and cherry-pick our way through our own heart. Okay, It's all of Scripture for all of your life. Um, we don't get to have a, a Sunday morning self and then a Tuesday afternoon self or a Monday through Saturday self where you have these two different people that you are, where there's the person that you are at the potluck after church on Sunday, but then there's the person you are at work, which is a completely different environment and you have to be a completely different kind of person in order to fit in and be efficient and, and work there. We can't have that kind of um, two-facedness. I love this about Moscow because especially we get a lot of people moving to town and you get somebody who's spent their whole life living in L.A. and then they show up in Moscow and, um, and driving becomes a real sort of revealer of your two-facedness because people who live in big cities um, get very accustomed to screaming, swearing, honking, and doing all kinds of rude and terrible things in traffic. Like, this is just how you have to be if you want to get anywhere. And then they show up in Moscow, and guaranteed you do that, and there goes the pastor, there goes the elder. Like, at least one out of three people at the intersection go to church with you. And and, and so you, you, you suddenly realize, I can't be like this. Like, I need to be the Christian me all the time. And I think it kind of rattles people a little bit. But, but we, you shouldn't have to move for that to be, for, for that to be true of you. 
Right? We want to be the same person uh, everywhere we go. Not a, a Saturday night self and a Sunday morning self. Or a when I'm in Boise self versus when I'm on the road traveling for work self. And I become a different kind of person with a different set of standards. It should be, it should be all of the Bible for all of you. For your whole life, all of it. Um, now, when you give yourself over to this kind of radical biblicism that I'm describing, you will find yourself in real conflict. You'll find yourself in real conflict because it's interesting. I think the, the world is quite comfortable with um, religion or even Christianity as long as it's not a Christianity that's, that's built on the foundation. If it's more of a like a mobile home Christianity, you know, they can go off of the foundation and be moved along a little bit. That's everybody can deal with that just fine. Because what happens then is you don't get you don't get scripture um, describing exactly what God is like. What you get is you get vague sort of biblical references that are filled in with a lot of platitudes and, and, and things that make other people feel comfortable. But you don't get the rigor that Scripture gives us in fleshing out what God is like, what His character is like, what His law is like. You 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 lose all of that. So if you if you really um, anchor yourself on Scripture and you and you make your life built on that foundation, you'll find yourself in a lot of conflict. And it's not just uh, the world versus the church. I think it's within the church. It's actually quite rare to find a congregation that is really given to thoroughly searching God's word and applying it consistently throughout um, their lives. Um, there is a there is an equivocation that, that happens in our culture, and it happens quite often um, in our churches, where, um, and I think it runs rampant in the world, where what happens is you express a biblical theme vaguely. You, you express a biblical theme very vaguely, and then instead of using Scripture to flesh it out and explain it and give clarity, what you do is you you fill out that fill it out with an the um with your your own understanding of that theme. You fill it out with the twisted desires of your own heart. Okay, so you take a, a biblical theme, but you express it real vaguely, and then you fill it out with how you think that it probably should be um, explained. Let me give a, a more specific example of what I'm talking about. Uh, the, the one I always like to use, because this is extremely common, is the phrase, God is love. Right, God is love. 1 John 4, 8. God is love. That's a biblical theme. Right there in Scripture, I can give you the, the, the reference for it. Okay, It's a biblical theme. God is love. Now, detach it from Scripture. Rather than using Scripture to flesh that out and explain what that would mean, I just say to you, what do you feel love is like? What do you, let's just kind of talk about how we feel about it rather than looking at what Scripture explains. How do you feel about that? So, so now you start the equivocation. Instead of filling out the definition of, of love with Scripture, looking at how God reveals to us what love is like, because we could do that. We could go and find the character and nature and attributes of God, and we would be getting a much clearer definition of what love is. But don't do that. Just just start looking in your own heart and asking yourself, how, what do I feel love is like? Um, you switch all, uh, all of it out, um, that definition, you fill it with the desires of your own heart. What does love feel like to you? Love, instead of being a description of the character of God, becomes whatever you feel intensely. 
Um, and in our world right now, that is primarily um, your sexual desires. Uh, your, your, take, take your strongest sexual desires. It's weird to me right now how um, that in America is the um, equivalent of love. Like, take your strongest lust, and we say that's what love is. Whatever your strongest sexual desire is, that is love. Um, now that you've identified that as love, because God is love, then that means that God loves this. This is, this, this is, um, this is divine. Um, so if a man feels a deep and powerful commitment to his homosexual partner, which he identifies as love, because this is what he feels really strongly, and because we know that God is love, then his homosexual desire becomes divine. It, this, this is a, an expression of his faith, really. It's divine. If you look at uh, virtually any um, Christian defense of homosexual practice, um, I did a quick little you know, survey through Amazon and a few articles, and I think you'll find it's pretty consistent. Any Christian attempt to defend homosexuality, it just follows this basic argument. What you say is, God is love, I feel like this is love, therefore God must love this. And, and you go into your own heart to flesh it out, but you don't go to Scripture. You don't, you don't look there to have that explain what love is. What you found is then it, we've, we've flipped it on its head. Scripture says God is love. What we have done is said love is God. And we don't notice that we've made this, this little flip. It seems kind of subtle, but it's, um, it's pretty huge. Because now instead of God defining love, we, our desires now actually restrict and define what God is supposed to be like, okay? So my heart and the lusts in my heart tell, tell me what God has to be like instead of God telling me what my heart is supposed to be like. So we've flipped God is love into love is God. And this goes on. You can do this in so many different categories. That's love, but think about uh, justice. We could do the same thing with justice. We know that God loves justice. God is just. Um, he loves justice. Justice will find described all throughout Scripture. But what you do is you, you just take the vague sentiment that God loves justice. Take that vague sentiment. Don't go to Scripture to figure out what justice, how justice is described here. Just ask yourself, what do you feel like is just? All right? And, and you know, you know as a parent probably, how quick kids are to be yelling out, that's not fair. Right? That's not fair. We all have this very powerful but very twisted sense of what justice is. All right? Things that are unjust are things that bother me, things that I don't like. Well, like, for instance, when other people have more money than me, that bothers me. That's not fair. That's not just. And since God loves justice, God hates us, right? Uh, and, and you can, you can um, run this argument in a whole host of different categories with love, with justice, with peace, all these different things. Instead of going to Scripture to define them, you just go to your own twisted heart. Put your own meaning in there, your own desires in there, and act like you've got the authority of God once you've, once you've gotten there. So you take a biblical virtue or theme. Uh, instead of doing the work of studying Scripture to flesh it out, you go into your heart, you say, how do I feel about this? But Christ is our cornerstone. We, we can't behave like that. We can't work like that. His revealed word is our standard. Our conception of love uh, and every other theme, justice, peace, whatever, has to be defined by the clear revelation of Scripture and not by the preferences of our own twisted hearts. Okay? We have to go from Scripture to flesh it out. We don't look into our hearts to flesh that out. Now, 
Okay, if, if somebody, um, I can anticipate an argument, and perhaps this is just because I'm in Moscow and I'm with all these philosophical people, so I always have to anticipate uh, all these kinds of objections and whatnot, but I think this is a reasonable objection. If somebody was listening to this, what, what they would have heard was me say, my own heart is, is twisted and defiled and all that, so I can't look in here at all to, fill, to explain these words. I have to just go to Scripture. But the problem is, when I go to Scripture, Scripture speaks to me in terms of my own heart. Um, I, I, how can I understand Scripture if I can't trust my own heart? Here, here's an example. Um, the golden rule tells me, love my neighbor as myself. Right there, if you think about that for a moment, love your neighbor as yourself, it's presupposing that you have a correct understanding of love inside of you. And, and, this is, and that's to then orient how you love your neighbors. Doesn't it presuppose that I have some correct understanding of love? And, and if all of my natural conceptions are broken, um, and we can only trust in Scripture, then how can I ever actually understand anything in Scripture? So often Jesus gives these parables and he doesn't spell it out. He expects you to sit and understand it somehow intuitively as if your heart does operate correctly. So how can it be if my heart is so twisted that I can't look inside of it at all and I can only look to Scripture, how would I ever even understand anything in Scripture? Um, if I if I look at the golden rule, it tells me to love my neighbor as myself. Well, do I need to find another verse to tell me how to love myself, or do I just trust my own innate impulse? And if I have to find another verse to explain that, then then do I need to find other verses to explain the the, the terminology and that and on and on? I could never actually understand scripture if I can't trust my own heart. I think um, my my explanation or answer to this is I, I I can remember as a kid. I think it was maybe fifth or sixth grade, somewhere around there. And um, I write a paper, and I, I get it back, and I've misspelled the word. And um, this is uh, this is in, in the 80s when you don't have spell check, right? And so I've misspelled the word, and my teacher tells me, uh, get a dictionary and figure out how to spell that. And it dawns on me, and I thought it was one of those moments where you think that you have caught your teacher in this logical inconsistency, and you're just going to humiliate him in front of the rest of the class. And, and, and it was like, but don't you see how, if I don't know how to spell the word, I can't look it up in the dictionary. Um, you have to know how to spell it to look it up in the dictionary. How can you use the dictionary to fix your misspelling if you don't know how to spell it? And it just seemed like, there we go, he's pinned, I'm done, this is great. And he gave me no answer. He gave me no help. What he gave me was ten more words that I had to find the spelling of before I could go to recess. Um, he, he gave me practice, not an answer. And you suddenly discovered, actually, you can look up a word in the dictionary if you don't know how to spell it. Um, because it's not when you don't know how to spell a word, it's not that you have no conception. As soon as you hear it, you have a conception of how it's spelled. You just know that there are a few different options for how to get there. And there may be some irregularities. And a little bit of trial and error. Generally, you can spell the word in, in you know less than 30 seconds with the dictionary. You can pretty much figure it out every single time. Um, and, and I think it's kind of similar with the, the dilemma I'm describing here with um, our hearts. It's not that our hearts are, um, are so defiled that they have no moral conception whatsoever. 
Paul tells us that the law of God is written on our hearts. That, that the conviction of the law is an important part of explaining why it is that we're guilty before God for our sin. The, the law of God is written on our hearts. Our hearts actually do understand. But our hearts are twisted. Our hearts are, 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 are blurred. Um, John Calvin in his institute says that, that you, have, you have natural revelation. That's the law of God that's written on your heart. But it, it's blurry. And so you see things, but you see them blurry. And then he says, Scripture is like a set of glasses that you put on, and all of a sudden everything shoo, comes into focus, and you see with clarity. Okay, It's the difference between fumbling through the dictionary when you don't know how to spell the word, and then landing on the correct spelling, and now you have clarity. Okay, And, and that's, that's how it works. Our hearts are twisted, but Scripture, when we come to Scripture, our, Scripture clarifies it. It sorts everything. It gives us clear vision and, and a right understanding. So we currently live in a world that's attempting to redefine God's character. Because we deny the existence of the Creator, we deny His correction to our blurry eyesight. And we are growing more and more cross-eyed every day. Uh, love, justice, man, woman, marriage, beauty... Think of all of these things that at one point were pretty clear and well understood and we're getting more and more foggy and blurry. This is because we've denied the cornerstone and now the stonemasons have just kind of wandered off of the job site and are just dropping rocks willy-nilly as they walk down the block. But whenever we see something like this in the world around us, <coughs> where you see this problem, I think one of the most fruitful things that we can do is stop and look into our own hearts and see if we see the seed of the same problem inside of us. How often do you redefine what God asks of you in Scripture simply by saying something like, but surely a loving God would not ask me to do that. Surely, Sometimes you'll hit something that that's, appears very hard, and your instinct is to say, surely if God is love, this doesn't feel like love to me. Rather than going to Scripture to, to um, articulate what our obligation is, we go to our own impulse. And because something hard has been put before us, we think to ourselves, no, he wouldn't, he wouldn't ask that of me. Um, have you ever had this happen when you're in a conversation and somebody says something like, you're in a, generally it's in a Bible study, you're working through a text and you're working through one of those kind of hard texts. And somebody will say something like, I could never worship a God who. Whenever you hear that phrase, I could never worship a God who, you're 95% likely that they're about to commit this error. Uh, maybe every now and then it, it works out. But most of the time, something really bad is about to follow. Um, it means that they've come across something in Scripture that offends their sensibilities. Ooh, I, I didn't like how that sounded. Um, so you have what Scripture says, what it, what it just said. And then how you feel about it in reaction to what it just said. And basically what they're saying is how they feel cannot change. So that text has to change. Okay? I don't, I could never worship a God who. So rearrange those verses for me. Do something, um, make an argument from the Greek or do something clever to make it not say what it sounded like it said. Because I, I'm not doing that. Right? It makes your own emotional response the, the thing that will not move. No matter how much, how the, um, you know, they, they are saying that they feel they cannot change. So how that verse is understood has to be the thing that ships. But push this further because I think this shows up all the time when you're working through practical Christian living. 
Um, think about just, there's a lot of different areas to apply this, but, but think of it this way. How do you feel about your marriage? How do you feel about your marriage? How does God command you to feel about your marriage? And how do you excuse the difference between those two things? Marriage is interesting because Scripture has a host of commands to our emotions in the context of marriage. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, honor your husbands. Your emotions frequently have strong competing opinions on this subject. But guess which one you're commanded to listen to. Husbands, love your wives. But I'm feeling over here. Okay, you've got scripture, you've got your heart. Which one is the cornerstone? Which one are you um, commanded to conform to? How do you how do you handle what is going on in your heart? How does God command you to handle those exact thoughts? And how do you excuse the difference between these two things? First Thessalonians five eighteen. In everything give thanks. In everything give thanks. Have you noticed when you're reading Job and he loses his family? Um, and the first thing he says is, uh, you know, the Lord uh, gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And you, you hear that, and it's like, that's a, that's a shocking response to the loss of your family. It's a shocking response. It's an obedient response. It's what we're commanded to do. Are we ready to be like that? Are we ready to, in all things, give thanks? Um, Philippians 4, 6, in, be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing, Philippians 4, 6. We live in the therapeutic culture that, that urges you to dwell on your anxieties and to stay just camped nonstop on your anxieties. Scripture commands you to be anxious for nothing. Do you submit to these commands? Or do you allow yourself to slump into depression and then come up with spiritual excuses for it? You slump into depression, and then you come up with ways that somehow this is uh, being obedient to God. If you're unsure of what I'm talking about, let me, let me help you. What I'm going to do is I'm going to coach you how to commit this sin. So this will be very helpful for you. Um, what, what you do is do, do this. Imagine, imagine your best life, your best life ever. Um, the health, the wealth, the relationships, the friends, the, the family, the house, Imagine all of that. And I'm not talking about like your, your, um, your lust-filled whatever. I'm talking about you living your, your most, most faithful life ever, right? You're hosting every church potluck because you have the most opulent home and you're the most generous person in the congregation. And you're just, you're, you're living faithful, you're giving, you're loving others, and you're living that best life. Now, Having imagined up this life, okay, just cross your eyes a little bit and get yourself confused about whether it was you or God who wanted this for you, right? Get yourself a little bit confused on that subject. Was this God or was this me that came up with this idea? Now, having gotten yourself confused, now resolve that confusion by deciding it probably must have been God, right? This probably was his idea. This is what he wanted for me. This is the best life, which surely a loving God would have wanted. Seems probable, right? Now, having made clear what God's will for your life is, you've, you've gotten yourself there. You know what he wants for you. You can be filled with righteous sorrow over it not coming to pass. Okay? You can be filled with righteous sorrow over these things not working out in your life. And better yet, you can be angry with friends who try to correct you. When people confront what they see as sin in you, you can turn it around to be sin in them. 
right? Your sorrow is just because God's will is not coming to pass. You imagine uh, Job's friends saying to him, you cannot be, when, when you say, blessed be the name of the Lord, no, you've got you to be in despair. You've got to be in anxiety. You've got to be falling apart right now. That, that's what would be faithful. Um, or flip it around. Let, let's, let's, say, let's, let's say that Job was not being obedient. Let's say he goes into despair after having lost his family, and a faithful friend comes up and says, you know what? You actually need to praise God right now. You, you need to thank him. Do you see how it would be very easy for him to say, no, that's terrible. That's, that, that's terrible. This wonderful thing has been taken away. It is right for me to sit and mourn this loss. Now, when your pastor tells you that you need to do a hard thing in your heart, right? when he comes and tells you you need to do a hard thing in your heart, where, and, and, and it's, if we were very consistent with Scripture, we would find a lot of hard things for our heart in front of us because your emotions are commanded all the time. And if your pastor comes and says, listen, you need to be anxious for nothing. You need to be anxious for nothing. You need to give thanks here. If he starts exhorting you like that, if you can get into this mood that I'm describing, then he's being spiritually abusive, right? Because, because he is thwarting God's will for your life. He's become spiritually abusive. In order to really live like this, your emotions, your personal preferences, your natural proclivities all stand firm. You hang on to those with a, a white-knuckled fist. You hang on to that tightly. Um, they become the cornerstone. Your emotions, your feelings, your sensations, those become the cornerstone and everything else has to be built on it and conformed to it. The sermons need to conform to it. The friendships need to conform to it. Everything has to be built around how you feel. And if you think about that for a moment, I think that that actually describes the modern American church quite well. I mean, that's that's kind of the modern American church that, that we live in. And if, if this is the case, then why are we surprised to look around and see a nation with no cornerstone when, when we have churches with no cornerstone? But Peter says, not you, not you. Let's go back to that text, verse 9. He's described those that, that hit the stone and they don't like it and they stumble when they hit that stone. But Peter says, but not you. You're different than that. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Not you. You're different than that. You are a people set apart. You are a people set apart in order to praise his name and to, and to reveal Him his character and nature to the world. Not you. I think that it's interesting that Peter is clearly drawing from um, Moses' words in Exodus 19 when he says this. He says, you're a, you're a priesthood, you're a chosen nation. If you go back to Exodus 19, starting at verse 5, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Israel called out of Egypt in the wilderness, and God says to them, you are my special people. You are a priesthood set aside, a royal nation. And that's what Peter is picking up on uh, here in, in, second, or in 1 Peter ch- chapter 2. But it's interesting that, that Moses says this in 19. Your people called out, set aside in Exodus 19. Exodus 20, 10 commandments. He's setting them up to hear the law of God what God has commanded them to be like. 
which is interesting if you start to go through that and you see how much in we hit the law, he's commanding our loves. We're going to recite this at the end of, of the service. I know this because I sat through the first one. Um, but but um, he commands our love, our loves. Here's how you're to love. Here's what you're to love. Here's what you're not to love. All right? And, and, and he can command that because you are his people pulled out and set apart. And Peter is repeating this now to the church. You, if you're built on this, um, on this foundation, you are set apart. Um, this is why, then, a commitment to regular Bible reading is so important to the health of your congregation. God builds his church with his word. And you must be a people who are regularly reading their Bible. And you must read the word with a conviction that what it says you must do. I read it. I read it straight through. And what it says, that's what I'm going to do. And, and here's the deal. There's great news also. I want to go one more verse to, into verse 10. Okay, he says, you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his special people. And then he says, who once were not a people but are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. You are chosen, you are, you are selected, you are pulled out, but there was a time when you were not not. You were not a people. And you were chosen not because of what you did. That's why he says you were people, you didn't have mercy, and now you have mercy. The, the choosing of you was the fruit of his mercy, his grace. And, and I, I want to make sure that I end there because I think it's really important that you notice that we, we do not, this obedience, this life that I'm describing of, of radical biblicism, we don't do that to earn God's favor. We don't do that in order to get this mercy. We do this because of his mercy, because of his choosing. This life is the life that we live as a result Peter does not say we do this in order to get mercy. He says we read our Bibles because we already have obtained mercy. This is the way you live because of what God has done for you, not in order to get him to do something for you. The sacrifice that we offer is a sacrifice of praise. He says that you might proclaim the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Right, the, the sacrifice is the sacrifice of praise. We don't, we're not making atonement for sin. That was once for all accomplished by Christ. Our sacrifice is the sacrifice of praise. So that is what you are doing here every Sunday morning. You stand on the foundation and you declare what God has done in our lives with the sacrifice of praise. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're a grateful people. We stand on Christ, the solid rock, our cornerstone, and we proclaim with grateful hearts that you have called us from darkness into light. You, the master builder, have chosen us and shaped us to be a part of the wall of this house of praise. Father, we are grateful to you for this work, and we, your chosen people, your royal priesthood, we praise and glorify your name. We pray these things in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and amen.